Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in the genre, but had their life changed by it in a major way. And today on the show, someone who changed my life in a major way, Ben Lee of Noise Addict, of Ben Lee solo fame, of tons of collaborations. More on that in a second. But first... If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me at the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There is also a Facebook page that is run by my brother and as that email address, Tristan Abraham, and that is turnedoutapunk slash Facebook. No, wait, no. Facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk. That's it. He also does the turnedoutapunk Instagram, and you can send him a message. He'll get the message to me. If you'd like to send me a message directly, you can find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. If you would like to support the show, the best way to do that is by telling all your friends, letting everyone you know uh, that you love this podcast and it's out there for them to enjoy too. You can also subscribe to this and, and write a review for it and rate it on your podcast listening place of choice. But speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard uh, years ago at this point and said, Damien, do what you do. We just don't want you to do it out of your own pocket anymore. Just, just keep doing it. Keep booking whoever you want to book, keep the show going. And we'll just, we'll just want to be here to support you do that. And I really appreciate them doing it. And, and not only that, but this past weekend, they flew me out to Chicago where I got to do a live podcast with my good buddy, Nate from Converge and my, I got to say my new best friend, Ben from Converge. We had a great time. We chatted about all sorts of fun stuff. You'll hear that eventually on Turned Out of Punk, but I just got to say thank you so much to Vans for having me out there. Got to chill with my buddies in Converge. Got to see them play an amazing show. And more than that, I got to reconnect with my little brothers in Cloud Nothings, who I have not seen in a, in a long time. Years, years. And now they're all grown up. It's like that scene in, in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey when... Uh, Bill and Ted come out of the the time machine and they're all like futuristic and, and haggard and road worn. And that's what cloud nothings look like. You know, here they were before as these little babes that I could hold in my arms and now they're, they're all grown up, but it was an amazing time. I love doing it. Shout out to Chuck, shout out to everyone at Vans for making sure that I was uh, taken care of. Like I, I feel, I feel very spoiled when I get to do these things and, and it sounds like I'm gushing right now. And it's not just because they sponsor this podcast. It's because I am gushing because I had the best time. I got eight to meet Aiden English. That's right. WWE superstar Aiden English came out just to chill in the parking lot with me. That's how fun that that weekend was. And I bought records. So thanks, fans. Thanks, fans, for supporting the show. And thanks, fans, for giving me a chance to go to Chicago and buy records and see Converge. What a oh, what a life this podcast is sometimes. What a life. Speaking of uh, lives and and what lives, what a life our guest today on the show has had. Ben Lee is someone who, if you're like myself, you became familiar with him when you were much younger than you are today, but as someone who was a, a virtuoso, and he really, really resists me putting this on him in this interview, as you'll hear, but my gosh, that guy can write a song. And that's something that continues to this day. He's someone who, you know, I, don't, I tell to him on this podcast, I feel like as I've grown up, he's grown up and, and every step of the way I've been ready for whatever he's going to do next. And 
yeah, I'm just so happy I got to do this. Thank you so much to show booker and show producer and email answer and everything for this thing. Tristan Abraham for putting this together. Cause Tristan and I discovered them together. My little brother, Tristan and I, and we ordered the CD from the Sam, the record man on the Danforth. That's now, I think it's called Mike's records now, but it's still there. And we ordered the CD and it was like $23 when it came in, like probably more, probably like $30 when it came in and it was on grand Royal and it was the coolest shit I had ever heard. I still listen to grandpa wood to this day. I, I ride hard for the Benley catalog and noise Attic catalog too. There's a noise Attic box set that numero group put out this year. That is, whew, it's daunting. It's amazing. It's a, it's a really cool listen. And I've been diving into that a lot lately ahead of this interview. I'm not going to blabber, blabber, blabber. Yeah. Blabber works. I'm not going to blabber anymore. Uh, because this is a real fun one. Ben, Ben was into it. He, uh, you'll hear, you'll hear. So that's it, everyone. Please sit back, relax and enjoy one of, one of the biggest influences on my life. Ben Lee on turned out a punk. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Ah, uh, thank you for having me. I'm honored. Well, as I was just telling you off air, this thing has been, I think, the longest coming out of any episode. No, Thurston Moore was just as long as yourself, but you and Thurston Moore right. have been, you know, decades in the making for me. So thank you for putting up with what will be, no doubt, a very punishing amount of time for yourself. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm excited to be punished. Well, let's let it commence then. Okay. <laughs> well, before the punishment really gets going, I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is Ben, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, yeah. I mean, I think I first kind of discovered the idea of punk or, or like the, the, just sort of an awareness that it existed kind of within um, the Sydney all ages music scene. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was a kid and I, you know, in Australia, the late eighties, early nineties, it was not yet like now Australia is on everybody's touring itinerary. Mm -hmm. Like every band, as soon as they have like somewhat of a presence, they go to Australia, but it didn't used to be like that. It was, um, international bands, you know, we'd get like Bon Jovi or, you know, Madonna, like huge artists, <laughs> but there wasn't really like that many artists that were like you know rock bands or anything or underground bands so i just was wanted to be at shows like it was literally like i played guitar and i wanted to go to shows every weekend mm -hmm. um and so you start just seeing what's available and really the only shows that run with any regularity um that i could go to were these <laughs> i didn't know the word punk but it was like you know like you, do you know the band The Hard-Ons? I was like going to say, hopefully The Hard-Ons, because I love Yeah, The Hard-Ons and The Hellmen and, um, you know, Spider-Bait, like different bands that, that I, I didn't even really know it was punk, but but I remember going to see um, The Hard-Ons play at the Manly Youth Center, and I was it was crazy. There was no uh, – I mean, I was probably like 11 or 12 or something. There was no <laughs> – pit kind of barrier so it was just like you know 600 kids 700 kids like up against the stage <laughs> yeah. and the band came on 
and the entire room moved. And I, I was, it was like this feeling of sheer terror. <laughs> and, um, and it was almost like that's when I understood. And, and you know what? It's weird. I connected it in my mind. I'd seen on Rage, you know, which was like our all night on morning, Saturday morning, Sunday morning music video show. It's still Australia. going, right? Yeah, but I think it is. Yeah, it is still yeah. going. Yeah, but that was like, because, you know, when we had three channels or four channels, that was every Saturday, Sunday morning, you could see music videos. And I remember I woke up one morning and they put on um, a Public Image Limited, that one, This Is Not A Love Song, you know, mm-hmm. just with like everyone beating each other up at the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, it was like, I didn't know what you called this type of music, but I knew that there, I suddenly was becoming aware that there was like a type of music that was oddly like negative. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that's like the right word for it, but I was thinking about it today and I was thinking about how like I love music that's like tender and connective and inspiring, but I also love music that pushes me away Mm -hmm. because sometimes that is an expression of what the moment demands, you know? And I was like, it was almost like the bands that I'd seen like on TV and everything like Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and everything – even though they were sort of like kind of had like a rebellious pose, they were basically old-fashioned entertainment mm-hmm. um, where like you basically paid money, went to the concert, and there was a spectacle and fireworks and everything. But I started becoming aware – this is all to, to get to answer your question – that there was this other music that was sort of like designed to like create negativity. Um and I mean that in like the most positive kind of way. Um, it was just about a different energy. And, and that's, I think, seeing those bands and hearing people talk about the influences and seeing people with like backpacks with dead Kennedys patches on it. And then like, you know, it all just started unraveling. And that was basically like where I was exposed to punk in its most like kind of most fundamental level, you know? Absolutely. Well, you're super young going to these shows, right? Like 11 or 12, like were yeah. you were anomaly like that or were there other kids kind of your age going to these shows too? I mean, I, it's weird because when you are like a wannabe, you know, like when you're a kid and you just want to be cool, like you don't see how ridiculous you look. Yeah. <laughs> we were young and small, but it was very – um. I don't know. It it all felt right. Like I felt like I was where I wanted to be and I was slightly scared, Yeah. which I think is not just about punk, but like as you're deepening into creative expression and art, you want to be slightly scared. Mm -hmm. Like I think in the sixties when people went to like their first dead show or whatever, like, like you would, or in, you know, in the, you know, eighties in New York, when you're like discovering some weird, like, you know, noise band. It, it, when it feels a little scary, you know you're onto something that sort of has a cultural vibrancy that maybe challenge your, your, challenges your sort of bourgeois beliefs or whatever, you know? Oh, yeah. The hippies were like freaky. Like when they, the first, like, you know, like it was a, a scary thing for adults. Like it was a challenging thing for adults to see at the time. So, yeah. It's yeah. Now- and I, I like that. I like yeah. a little bit of that, just a little bit, even in, and this, you know, we can talk about this in a bit, but, but kind of what I really came to believe the power of punk really was, was kind of embodied in Jonathan Richmond for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. Um, who basically played, played, played kids songs on an acoustic guitar that were inexplicable and, 
you know, it was like too innocent for the rockers and too grown up for actual kids to listen to. Um, but but I came to realize that that feeling of danger, it doesn't have to be this public image limited, like people actually punching each other in the face. It can be this weird, subversive quality that can be carried through anything you do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think it's like, you know, it's it's amazing that, you know, you're seeing it that at that young age, you know, like you're getting into the stuff at that point, like the stuff that's kind of freaky, but like, how did you get into music before that? Like, how did you become, you know, even ready for punk at that age? Um, I, I mean, it was in my family, you know, like I have a great uncle who was a court violinist for Tsar Nicholas in Russia. Whoa. Um, I had another great uncle who was a gypsy violinist who played in Berlin in the twenties. Like, There was this weird sort of like Jewish, gypsy, European kind of thing that was going on. And that's the kind of thing that's in your DNA. And no matter how much people move to the new world and try and be respectable and um, go to university and be doctors and lawyers and all the things that like good Jewish (laughs) students are meant to be, Mm -hmm. you can't, you can't get that out of your bloodstream, you know? Um, And so it was always there. And I remember just, being obsessed with the music that was on the video shows like Pet Shop Boys. And I mean, I found all of it just fascinating and like pops on craftsmanship and the darkness of it. And um, I don't know. I, I loved it. I loved music. And, and then I remember in second grade, there was a musical on at our school and we had to like, we had to audition for it, which was basically meant they just needed to work out who could sing, yeah. um, who could carry a tune. And they had us each stand up and sing like Do Remy Facility Do, like in the class, go around. And I remember singing it and it feeling good in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just liked the feeling of singing. Like I knew that it wasn't that I was the best singer in the world, but the tone that came out of my body, it felt good to make it. And I saw that it made – like they, I saw they wrote my name down after I did it. Like there was something innately that just sort of worked about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I always had this kind of like musical thing. Like I always say that like I've related much more to the sort of John Lennon model of, you know, he would say like, you know, give him something and he'll get a, he'll make a sound out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's, you know, he's an artist, he's musical more than I'm not a prodigal musician, but I feel music, you know? And so, the journey, like I said, the journey to sort of underground music, for me, it had a lot to do with accessibility. Like, what could I touch? What could I see? What could I... I didn't really want to live my life revolving around this music that was on a pedestal that I couldn't really reach. I wanted to meet the musicians. I wanted to, like... I just wanted to be in it, you know? And mm-hmm. and under the underground is always the place where... It's funny, you know, my stepdaughter... She goes to all these shows at the smell, you know, and then, and she knows like, there's like these, the drummer in that band is dating the bass player in that band. And they, they were standing at the back and they were like, they're like the Beyonce and Jay-Z of the scene. You know, I don't know if I forget who their names are, but it's that feeling that like you're, you're in the main event. You're not watching it from the sidelines. Yeah. You know, and, and underground music and punk was kind of like, you know, that's where you could have that. Yeah. It's the only place that also like, privileges the voice of a young person too like you know you're Mm. at that age like where else is going to be 
you know, looking at what you're doing and being like, yes, this is valid. And this is worthy of, of us looking at in the same way we look at artwork created by adults. That's so true. And you know, it's interesting, like another, I don't know if you, you know, if your listenership, like how, like how broadly they define punk, but to me, like the lo-fi recording movement was like pure punk, you know, and that was, and that to me was, I can't tell you how many days I've woken up in gratitude that I started my career at a time when making bad recordings was actually a badge of honor (laughs) because I don't think I would have, I was so delusional. Like I was recording on a Tascam 244 and I believed in my mind, I thought it sounded like appetite for destruction or something. Like I just thought it was this huge sounding music. And I mean, it's the, it's the demos that Thurston Moore put out on his label that just sound like, I mean, it's not even, we make the shag sound professional, you know, it's like, like we are so, uh, it's so odd, but, but that, that type of delusional thinking could only have thrived in that atmosphere. And I'm just so, so grateful. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I I think it's funny because it's, it's like, you you know, mentioned the lo-fi recording scene, like Lou Barlow, your bandmate, uh, like yeah, yeah. you know, like started in Deep Wound, a punk band, you know, or or uh, Stephen Malcolmist started in a punk band, or Thurston Moore started in a punk band. Like everyone played in these punk hardcore bands, you know. Ultimately, before finding, you know, melody and and something, even like yeah. I just had a uh, Jennifer from Royal Trucks on, and you know, she was like a punk yeah. hardcore kid before she before yeah. Royal Trucks. It's like it's wild how deep it goes. And you know what's you know what separates like my generation because. Um, like, you know, Thurston and Stephen Malkmus and Jay and all those guys, they're a lot older than me. Like, even mm-hmm. though those were the bands like I toured within the beginning and everything, they were a generation um, ahead. Mm-hmm. So their concept of punk and my concept of punk were different too, because mine became more meta. So my actual deconstruction of indie rock and underground music and doing things like I'm going to have Mandy Moore sing on this song. (laughs) Like doing stuff like that to me all came out of my punk ethic, Mm -hmm. but that would not have been acceptable to the late eighties, early nineties punk ethic where, you know what I mean? It's almost Mm -hmm. like your, your, your credentials had to be worn much more brazenly. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was kind of like in between worlds, like where I exist is almost like on the bridge of this newer, like Spotify, like kids that have grown up on streaming where it's like, it's kind of all good. Like as long as you pick and choose and make it unique, um, then it's authentic. But that's, that was funny for me because I made a lot of choices that were almost like anti aesthetically anti punk, but spiritually the most punk thing I could have done. Mm-hmm. Because I always believed that you have to tear down the sacred cow of your own sort of um, your own success. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I didn't want to be looked at as this like the coolest kid in the world. That was sort of the marketing around me. You know, that's like what like the Face Magazine and NME said. Mm-hmm. And to me, the punk side of me was like, oh, I have to destroy that. <laughs> And and so it's funny how you can be you can actually be super punk to the point that I think people don't recognize your choices as punk. Yeah. Because like it's like they think they like punk, 
but they don't actually want something they don't recognize. Mm -hmm. That's what's funny about it. Like, it's like essentially meant to be this sort of, um, you know, breeding ground for non-conventional thinking. But there can become sort of parameters for what's acceptable within that. And I remember Mike Watt was one of the first people, like when I made Breathing Tornadoes, which was like one of the first records that any of my peers had made that had like lots of loops and synthesizers. And it was kind of like a, a different sounding record. I think that was like 99 or something. I remember Mike Watt saying to me, this is what punk used to be like. Every band was different. Like, like he was sort of remembering that like there was – punk had become something where people sounded the same but the ethos of it should be total uniqueness yeah like i think it definitely you know it the punk orthodox leanings and the punk sort of like you know codification happens but i think there's also like even it's amazing how like that codification happens but like there's just so many people that were like no we're the punk you know, like it's like yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the people that were doing noise rock were like, no, we're the punk. We're the people that inherited this thing. And the people that are doing straight edge hardcore were like, no, we're the punk. We're the people that inherited this thing. It's like, it's amazing how, you know, it still can be whatever people wanted to find it as. Like, that's the thing I think. Well, it's also like religion. Yeah. It's like religion. It's like who, who has the real message of Jesus or Buddha? Yeah. Like there's like everyone's arguing amongst themselves. You know? <laughs> <laughs> who is the true inheritor of the mantle that's been passed down? From the Clash to Fugazi to whoever. Yeah. And that's why, like, I have that sticker of D. Boone on my fridge that says, you know, punk is whatever we made it to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because I just I just feel like it's something I tap into constantly with my decision-making. Like, I've just been in this decade-long collaboration with the author Tom Robbins, who's one of the most punk people I've ever met. Like, mm -hmm. he's 87 years old. And... Um, just him saying like, yes, when he gets an email from a 30, you know, three-year-old at the time, Australian, to let's make a psychedelic children's musical about alcohol. That's a punk. You know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> and so it's kind of like realizing that like, wow, what you're really talking about is like this spirit of rebelliousness. I mean, at the end of the day, that to me is what it's really, really about. Absolutely. No, I think the spirit of rebelliousness and also like, like you're saying like that, that, that urging and that leaning that all of us felt for some reason, when we we're looking at the Bon Jovi stuff and we're looking at the stuff that's kind of being given to us and being like, yeah, that's cool, but that's not what needs to scratch my itch. Yeah. It's also kind of about spotting hypocrisy. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it that like for me, the punk move at any given moment is that which reveals something to be false. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you can never predict what that's going to be moment to moment. Um, yeah, like it's, it's a very odd thing. It's almost like journalism. Like the essence of punk to me is about, it, it is kind of, like I said, the negative, it's the tearing down. It's the impulse to tear down something that isn't real. And that's like a spiritual principle, you know, like I love that. Um, I forget who said that. If you meet Buddha in the road, kill him. And I think that's been like misunderstood a lot. But I think what it means is like the point is if he's the real Buddha, you can't kill him. And so if there's something that the punk tries to destroy and can't, then it's the truth. That's awesome. I've never thought about that like that. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it needs we need to be 
I mean, I remember, it's funny, I'm talking all about Buddhism a lot. It's not, I'm not a Buddhist, but it, 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 I think Buddhism is kind of punk. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember hearing the Dalai Lama talk about journalists and how important journalists are because they point out who's lying. That makes sense. Absolutely. And, and like, you know, and they think about the great, like, you know, people like Jello Biafra, the great lyricists of punk rock. And that's exactly what they're trying to do is point out who's lying. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. Um, back to the tangible, um, I guess, or the, or the, <laughs> the physical realm. Um, so you start going to these shows, like actually, I guess growing up before that was like, you know, I'm fascinated by the music scene in Australia. Cause it just seems like rock and roll specifically like punk drive rock and roll is, is much mm. more mainstream throughout kind of, you know, it's run. And like, so were you aware of like radio Birdman and the saints? Was that stuff kind of like part of the popular culture at the time when you were growing up? I no, not really. Cause that was sort of like early and mid eighties when, you know, I was born in 78. Yeah. So to me, and even so, I mean, it was popular, but it wasn't like, like my older sisters who liked Fleetwood Mac and Roxy music. I don't think they'd have ever heard of radio Birdman or the saints, you know, okay. like you still had to be, they were for music fans, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so there was sort of like, like there was like moments of that. Like I remember, um, I remember Henry Rollins came out to Australia and I saw him play and he had, um, beasts of bourbon and Dennis tech open yeah. and Dennis tech, you know, from radio. Birdman. Absolutely. So it was sort of like the culture, like, you could sort of go down the rabbit hole because it, like the, th those people were still there. Um, yeah, it, it was sort of like, there was still a connection to it. And like Ed Cooper was, you know, playing a lot, but it wasn't like, it, it was a different scene. Like the, the scene that I grew up in was more connected to like, it was like punk that came up around surfing and skateboarding. Was it like the waterfront record scene? Yeah. Yeah. And just, but it was like, it was just like kids. It was less like, like Radio Birdman and Birthday Party and all that stuff was like, those guys were like hardcore. Yeah. Um, I think like the, the, the punk bands I was listening to were just like suburban kids that wanted to like, it was almost a little bit more like the Berkeley, you know, lookout kind of scene a little bit. Like they were, yeah. like, they were just like good kids that wanted to play really loud and get drunk and stoned and like skin surf and stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. I guess like how, like when noise addicts form, like, was that your first, actually was noise addict your first band? I mean, I played in one band for one night that did like all along the watchtower and under the bridge by the red hot chili peppers. <laughs> That's an amazing <laughs> like, set list. Yeah. It was like, we had two songs. I think we played and it was like, we had to beg. I was just like a guitar player in a, but the singer had to like beg someone to play at their birthday party. And that was that we played. But, but yeah, Noise Addict was honestly like, I went to the first big day out and Nirvana played. And um, it was Nirvana and the Violent Femmes. Um, I mean, there was lots of other bands, but like a lot of those bands played and Mass Appeal. I was really like, I really loved the hard-ons, like a lot of bands I loved. But something about... There was something about Nirvana playing and then the Violent Femmes playing right after them. Because mm -hmm. this is, I think, the week Nevermind came out. So it was like, it was a phenomena, but it wasn't yet like, you know what I mean? Like a yeah, phenomena. Yeah, it hadn't hit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and there's something about the recipe in these two bands that I saw how they both communicated the punk spirit in such 
different ways, but were so similar. There was a simplicity and there was the, they were both really song based. Like you felt with the Violent Femmes and with Nirvana that this was like one guy had written a song with an acoustic guitar basically, and Mm -hmm. then played it really loud with his friends. It just seemed, it seemed doable, you know, within my kind of, skill set like i looked at the types of chords that were in those songs you know and it was like i could play all those i mean it was so funny because it was pure heart without Mm -hmm. any intelligence in the decision i mean there was always like a machiavellian i mean it was like i i i needed a drummer right i knew you needed a drummer and i knew one kid whose brother had drums and i was like well look he's his brother has drums like, even if he's just hitting them, if he doesn't know how to play them, this guy could be the drummer because there'll be drums. He's got to, so I asked him to be the drummer and he was totally psyched. This other friend of mine, like my best friend at the time, Duran, he had a Zoom pedal that you could – it had a bass programming sound on it kind of that like you – it was basically just like an octave. Like it did like a low octave. And I was like, do you want to be the bass player, like playing guitar through the Zoom? And I was like, and I'll play guitar and that's it. And then um, I remember I, um, I listened to um, – Never mind a lot. And I was like, okay, so it's basically like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, double chorus, end. That's basically how you do it. (laughs) And I just pulled all these ideas. This all happened over a weekend. I pulled all these ideas of songs and I put them into those forms. So like all the early noise. I mean, it's funny because like ultimately you don't need to know. At a certain point you go, oh, how do I write a bridge? But basically (laughs) the recipe was there. And I just like, I just did it. I mean, it was it was true lunacy. That's awesome, and I, I love the fact that Violent Femmes is in that alchemy there because I think that band is one of the most underrated bands that doesn't get called a punk band enough. Because to me, they are the quintessential punk band. I love that band so much. Well, that yeah, I mean that. Like I was saying about Jonathan Richman, that whole journey of understanding the connection between acoustic music and folk music and punk Mm -hmm. was super important to me down the line. Um, And now it's kind of like to the point that like I can sense when it it turns me on personally, when I can hear that punk thing in jazz or in like traditional Indian music or in anything like it's like, I've realized the spirit can be anywhere, but Mm -hmm. there's something about acoustic instruments that, I just fell in love with like from television personalities, Billy Bragg, um, those artists that used, and then through to like, um, like I loved the Vaselines, um, you know, that stuff that was all, and, and all the K records stuff, um, that was like cute. And I was like, Oh my God, that can be punk. Like people can almost be like, refusing to grow up and being cute and that's a type of protest (laughs) and it's almost like it's also like a type of protest against it it's so interesting now to reevaluate all of that indie rock from the early 90s in the context of what we're not coming to understand about toxic masculine culture Mm -hmm. and like what a protest was happening in these bands where like grown men and women were saying we don't want to lose the innocence of our childhood Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. don't want sex to have to become this like dirty violent thing like we want it to be playful we want life to you know to me that's what the vaselines that was so great about it like it was so sexy 
but it was so innocent and playful at the same time. So it's like the types of protest and the types of punk that was like coming out. It just, I just started realizing the diversity of the way that that type of thinking can manifest itself in music. Yeah, no, it's, and, uh, you know, the Vaselines are another perfect example of a band that, you know, like, it's like that knife hidden inside, like a velvet glove type thing. That's probably a terrible yeah. analogy there, but, but like, no, no, know, no, I get it. But the, yeah, they're just, it, and it's something that's so beautiful, but there's such a cynicism and like a, an understanding of how crappy the world is and yet like resisting it through naive play. And you know what's weird? It's like the deeper we go into this kind of, you know, for people like you and me that like fell in love with punk when we were young and it almost becomes a life work, like unpacking what is that? Yeah. And obviously that's why you're doing this podcast. You come to realize that like what we call punk is really just like what art should be. Basically, it's like good art should do all the things we're saying punk should be. It should be, it should have an agenda other than a commercial one. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's got a proper agenda that's like it's a social experiment. It's an emotional experiment. It like it demands your attention. Like that that to me is just like great work. Yeah, no, absolutely. I we're at a I'm like my my obsession currently is pro wrestling because I think we're at a moment in pro wrestling yeah. that really mimics the the early nineties in and late eighties in American underground music and and international underground music, but like that kind of energy where the independent scene and the non mainstream scene has more excitement to it or just as much excitement, no more excitement to it than anything that's happening on the mainstream scene. Wow. That's interesting. I know nothing about that. That's fascinating. It's it's amazing. There's actually a bunch of stuff happening in Australia as well. Right now. It's like, it's really kind Hmm. of a global thing. I just got, I did a TV show, a 10 part TV show looking at wrestling around the world and went to the Congo and it's happening in the Congo Whoa. as well. It's 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 an amazing kind of moment for this pro wrestling. Anything I won't punish you with that now because no, that's interesting. <laughs> One thing I I did want to talk to you about though is were you a fan of that album Rock by the Violent Femmes? Uh, I have to look up. Let it's me see what's from, on that album. It's the one that only came out in Australia. Like never came out anywhere else in the world or maybe it did like way later or way after the fact it's not in any streaming services and it came out oh. on mushroom records in 95 and it's got that song well, of- now i'm seeing the cover I, I do remember the cover of that album um I don't know if I had it. Was it like a souvenir, like a tour souvenir type thing? I have no idea. Like I only got it at a UCD store in Toronto. And if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, there's now a Discogs, I would have thought I had dreamt it because there's just no sign of it these days. But there's a song on it about Jeffrey Dahmer's murder called Dahmer is Dead. But then there's a song on it called uh, Sweet Life of Angels or something. I think it's Sweet Life of Angels. But that's, I think, The Sweet World of Angels is the song. And that's the, that's, I think, the best Violent Femme song. So that's a long wow, way for me to get that's to that bananas. Point. Okay, I got to track it down. Yeah, definitely. I strongly recommend you track it down just for that. It's like not the greatest Violent Femmes record apart from a few yeah. songs, but it would make a killer Violent Femmes EP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, But back to your journey once again. So when Noise yeah. Addict starts playing, like what scene do you fall into? Is it more of this sort of younger, you know, scene that I guess you would be at the forefront of? Or is it like, were you playing with some of these waterfront punk bands in the beginning? Yeah, like, well, we, you know... um, I mean, I think we, we sort of aspired to be, but, but we really, um, I really loved, there's this label called Half a Cow, mm-hmm. um, 
And that was Nick Dalton, who was the bass player. He became the bass player in the Lemonheads. Okay. But they put out, like, they had, like, Smudge, um, Sneeze, Sidewinder, the Daisy Grinders. Like, it was sort of really, like, real, like, indie rock. Like, Sydney indie rock, you know? Um, And um, I think we... I, I I don't know. I, I really loved all of these scenes. And again, like I was sort of young. So we ended up kind of, um, you know, kind of finding our peers in, there was a band called Girling, um, a band called Luster 4, a band called Spitter Figure Her. Um, but our, our, we, our friends were sort of became more bands in their like early 20s, which were still older than us. Mm-hmm. But it was a little more our generation. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I was really lucky in that the guy who sort of like, you know, quote unquote, like discovered our band, this guy, Steve Pav, he was the, uh, he, he was a promoter who brought out Sonic Youth and Fugazi and Dinosaur Jr. and Sebado. So that was really how we connected with all of those bands. Um, and then he ended up co-founding Fellaheen with Steven Stavrakis from Waterfront and that, that, so it was sort of connected to all these worlds, but I was also like at, you know, I was in school. Um, yeah. <laughs> so our touring was really limited. It was like, if we got off at weekend things, we could kind of do it. Um, I mean, I still remember like I played when my first solo album came out, I played with Alex Chilton at, um, at Maxwell's oh, that's and amazing. I met him, I met him briefly, but it was like, it was really good. Like I actually got kind of an encore for the opening act, which was like pretty, I don't know. I don't know if I should have done that in red. I was kind of like, after I was like, Oh, is that, that's sort of bad etiquette. Um, but then when he came out to Australia, he asked for me to open for him again. I couldn't do it cause it was on a school night. <laughs> I was like, um, so it was like just trying to like balance all these worlds and <clears throat> you know, all of these acts, you know, I've actually just, um, finished, a, um, I've made a covers album, called quarter century classics that's coming out on new west in um november and it's like built to spill fugazi um uh sonic youth beat happening like covers of all these songs did you Um, produce skulls because your cover of skulls that i saw years ago was one of the (laughs) best things ever someone else referred to i'll tell you a funny story about that um when i have you heard of a place called the barwin club in geelong no that was like that was like so Geelong is sort of outside Melbourne. Okay. But it is like it was kind of like a hardcore great rock scene. Like there was a band called God that had a single oh, that was like fucking really amazing. big called My Pal. Yeah. So yeah. they were like they were like this Geelong band and then this band Bored came out of there and this other band Warped. And anyway, so Noise Addict was invited down to Melbourne and our first show was at the Barwin Club and it's like all I'd heard was just how like insane the audience was. <laughs> like they were just like madmen. Like I expected, you know, like when you're a kid, you have such fantasies. Like I think when I made my first album in America, I thought I would be getting like a blowjob in the vocal booth, like Jim Morrison. Um, <laughs> just cause I thought that's what happens when you make albums. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then, and when I'm going to play the Barwin club, I was like, I'm going to get killed. So I was like, I've got to be as tough as I can be. So that's when I learned skulls. Um, by the misfits. Cause I was like, okay, I'm just going to come out with like an aggressive statement, but it's so funny. Cause now looking back, this like 14 year old me singing skulls by misfits at the Barwin club, I think the audience were all laughing, but I actually did get them on side because it was so funny. Um, 
But anyway, um, well, yeah, I, that, so sorry. Just yeah, like, before yeah. we move on to the cover, I it's when you did that cover. That's when I really kind of realized for the first time what great songwriters well danzig was i guess but like yeah just what a great song that was like to hear it kind of stripped away from all the punk edifice it was like oh shit this is just like a great song well that's this covers record i just made has been a lot about that for me like going okay i know this fugazi song moved me Mm -hmm. I know this Dinosaur Junior song moved me. Now that I'm an actual musician who's been doing this like over half my life, let me like deconstruct it and figure out why. And like, so I covered this Fugazi song, Blueprint. And firstly, the groove that it's almost like a blues. The song's almost like a blues, you know, but then there's like a crazy four bar modulation in the middle of the song. And it's like sophisticated musicianship that, does stuff to your body, you know, like mm-hmm. there's like the more, you know, about music and uh, harmony and intervals and you go, Oh, each choice you make has an effect on the listener, you know, and you look at some of the punk bands and you don't know how conscious they were, like how educated were they about their musical choices and how much was intuitive, mm-hmm. but you can guarantee that if a song grabbed you at 13, 14 years old, if you go to break that down now, there is some craftsmanship involved because it is not easy to grab a 14-year-old's attention in their like manic, manic haze of sexual energy <laughs> and say, you know what I mean? Say, like, this song's for you. Like, there's got to be something powerful happening in that song. Yeah. And I think you don't realize it if it's noisy. People just go, oh, whatever. They just like the beat or they like the loud guitars. But there's some great writing and great musicianship involved. Oh, absolutely. And I think that was the thing with you and what you were writing. Like those songs grabbed me as a kid. Like you were speaking to me, like I was a year younger than you and just like everything. And then like the thing was, you know, you're going through all of our dreams, you know, like you're, you're like, you know, you mentioned earlier and what a burden this was ultimately, but you were the coolest person in the world, you know? And, and like, I don't mean it's so funny, but, but at the same time, like, it's also, I, I can totally understand what a fucking mind fuck that would be as a kid to go through it. But at the same time, we were also like, we didn't have your talent. Like, so it wasn't like I ever thought I could be doing what you were doing. I just wished I was able to be in your shoes. Like it wasn't jealousy ever. It was more just like, this is actually happening. Like this is Doogie Hauser of, of indie rock. Yeah. It's weird because just the other day, you know, when you build a career on a certain type of transparency, mm-hmm. It's quite conflicting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that part of punk rock stayed with me of like, I'm going to tell the truth. Yeah. Like whatever I'm going through, I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to talk about it. But I think what you realize as artists get older is they often become, I wouldn't say less honest, but I would say more interested in abstraction. You know, like I've been really interested in Tom Waits and his career yeah. because he actually started off quite literal and became more and more abstract. I think as he came to understand that there's a great Oscar Wilde quote where he says, um, give a man a mask, he'll show you the truth. Yeah. Because I think when you're young, you think that the truth needs to be yelled in plain language at someone's face. And as you get older, you realize like, oh, if I kind of codify it a little bit, it actually tells a deeper truth. But anyway, um, one of the things I sort of – have grappled with is that some of the criticism that I've received 
over the years has been not just criticism of my music, but actual criticism of where I was standing at the moment I made the music because I was so honest in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's very different than if you like construct something out of total artifice and someone goes, mm, I don't aesthetically agree with this decision to put this drum loop with this. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it, it, it's totally different. It's more like, we don't like what you stand for at this moment. And I was saying to my wife, I had this very liberating moment the other day when I was, um, I was remembering a particular moment in my career when the reviewer said, Lee moved around the, I remember, you know how you get certain bad reviews, you can yeah. never forget the words. Oh, yes. <laughs> it said like, Lee moved around the stage with the, um, the abandon of someone who has just discovered the power of sexuality, and it was an insult. Right? What a horrible thing to and, say about a young person, too. Yeah, it was. But then I had this moment the other day when I went, that I was discovering sexuality. And I was moving. I was like, wow, that was actually a compliment. Because <laughs> I was communicating what I was going through. Yeah. And he saw it. Yeah. He saw it. But it's very hard to process that when you're younger and not take it as this giant diss. When you, so, so anyway, that's kind of like the that's been an interesting part of the journey because I have, in some ways I've always tried to not take things personally, but it's, it's hard. But now as I'm getting older, I'm realizing like, Oh, like just to have an effect on people and have them be even triggered by something and have them to dislike it. There's such a volume of work created every day in the world. Like just to get a reaction how hard is it to do that? There has to be something happening if you're getting a reaction. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing I think as you as an artist, it's been amazing to kind of grow up with you and just to watch you develop as a fan, you know, into all these different places and almost like grow up with me. Like your art's grown up as I've grown up, you know, like every stage I'm ready for something new and that's what you're doing. It's so, it's so, I so appreciate it. I'll tell you, there's a very funny moment for me. Um, a few years back when it was like, like at this moment now, it's quite interesting because I've sort of like matured into a place. I feel like after a while you stick around long enough where people just go, okay, that's their territory. Let them keep it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> they fought for it long enough. Let them have it. But there's like some in-between period where there's future generations coming in and you feel irrelevant and you know what I mean? And all yeah. That. Yeah. Um, and and I remember like my this one this collaborator, Nick. I don't know if this is going to sound relevant, but um, this Nick who I had played with for years, Nick Johns. He's a really great musician, and and um, and we were actually talking about your band. This was a decade ago, um, and he said it's so funny because because we both liked your band. He was like, I don't think he's like I don't think there's much difference between you guys. It's just the way things are marketed to each generation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That like when something – like people want a thing that's going to feel – like there's a necessity to burn the past. This is part of punk too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you have to destroy the past and you have to find your own thing, which is ground zero or year zero, whatever they call it. Yeah. And um, it's funny when you've been that to then be on the side that needs to be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You must feel that, you know, because oh, as definitely. you age, 
It's like at one point you are the person throwing stones and then on the other side, then like a decade later, you're the person in the glass house having the stones thrown at them. I, every time we do, every time fucked up moved up, it felt like we were just moving into a larger glass house to live in. Like it felt yeah. like at every stage, like I remember when the maximum rock and roll world turned on us. And then I remember yeah. when the enemy world turned on us. And then I remember when the pitchfork world turned on us and it was just like, Wow, like you know, we're we're moving up, but just to get like, just for people then to turn around and be like, nah, what they did before was better, and it's just like, at every stage, you know, and I'm, you know, you feel it too. I think everyone that makes music for an extended period of time must go through it, where you have almost like a sedimentary rock of fans, where like you run into a fan who's like, oh, I loved you until this record, and you're mm. like. Yeah, that's cool. But like, and I, I, at one point I would be angry and I'd be like, well, why don't you like what I'm doing now? But now I realize that like, I, I can't expect them to come with me my entire life, you know, like. I know. And like, in a way, I think social media has been good for that because you get these little insights into someone does a little Instagram thing of like, oh my God, rediscovered this record. It's taking me back to like, and you see they're having a genuine moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um which you before you would only get them telling you at a show and it would feel just really bizarre. But, <laughs> but I think one of the, this is another part of punk rock is that if you are going to, ah, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a bit of a wild ride of an analogy right now, but I remember Jim Carroll, um, you know, basketball diaries, you know, oh, absolutely. Um, people who have died. Yeah, yeah. So Jim, yeah. So Jim Carroll, they used to have to do this reading. They might still do it every year in Sir Mark's place on New Year's Day. It was a poetry reading. And Jim Carroll came in one year to read and he threw up. It was in a church, in Sir Mark's church, and he threw up on the podium. And everyone was really disapproving. And Patty Smith was like, you invited a junkie to entertain you. Like... Like, th this is the nature of it. You, you're playing with fire, basically. Like, you've invited someone whose work you've enjoyed about their struggles with drugs, mm -hmm. and now you are faced with the day-to-day -day reality of that, and you're rejecting it, and you think it's beneath you. Mm -hmm. And I guess my point is that for those of us that have had a fascination with what punk has taught us is that nothing's permanent, and that everything must be destroyed and must be like whittled down to its truth and our own hypocrisy. We can't stand for it to then be on the receiving end of that as we age is also purifying. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like we should be so lucky to have ourselves called out for times that we've veered away from. We've, we've all veered away from authenticity at various points as an artist, it can be incredibly subtle. It can be like the tone of a snare drum <laughs> mm -hmm. down to taking notes on a mix from a major label down to writing with some producer who did, you know what I mean? It's like, like the levels of compromise where we feel like we didn't actually do the thing that we wanted to do, but we did the thing we thought people wanted to hear or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's what like, it's like we sh punk tells us, Call yourself on that. Call other people on that. And it's a beautiful purifying fire that we get to um, kind of continue to live our lives with the memory of and in the presence of. Yeah, it's funny because we all – like anyone that – like unless you make a one and done seven inch, then you 
fade off into obscurity or you do two perfect seven inches and, and, and that's it like razor you know like and that's it and that's your legacy you're you're bound to have that moment of compromise because you know we live in a world that that is a capitalist world and if you're going to try and make this into a career or even something that doesn't require you to spend money to keep doing it you're going to have to eventually figure out like okay what do people want from me yeah well, and we're humans and we experiment and that's part of it too like you know, not all our experiments work out. Some yeah, of them yeah. are wonderful <laughs> and some <laughs> of them fail and it's embarrassing. But I've always thought I'd rather be the person that has experimented. And like, you know, when I look at that side of me that was like, I had a side of me that was like super curious about like what separates me from John Mayer. You know what I mean? Besides him being a better guitar player. Like I I had a real thought and I had people in my ear kind of telling me like, oh, if you just work at this studio or if you just do, you know, like you start hearing things like that. Like, and you know, I think all artists have gone that like, oh, what's the next level? What's the next level? You know? Yeah. And when you do it and it's not satisfying, because I always think the real mark of like another thing that like punk rock taught me is that the thing itself should be cathartic whether or not it's a success outwardly. Mm -hmm. Like the thing itself should be satisfying and pure. And when you make something compromised and it's not successful externally, it feels like you've watched too much porn. You know what I mean? Like, or eaten too much candy. Like it's like, it's like a disgusting feeling. Yeah. There's nothing good there. Whereas when you make something with your heart and soul and spit and fire and no one likes it, you still are in love with it, you yeah. know? And so that principle is like, I think just really important as my life and career go on. I can never remember who I saw. I saw someone do an, someone do an interview years ago on much music, new music or something where they were talking about how people were afraid to make failures anymore. Like no one was going to make another Tusk because mm. people are just too concerned with what people want. And that's why they end up failing. Like no one's going to make some spectacular artistic statement, but then you have something like Lulu come out, which everyone hated. Yeah. Yeah. And it was yeah. like very clearly that none of these people had to do this record. Like they were making it an artistic statement that went over all of our heads, mine, mine included, but like they were making it. Yeah. But I think that, I think part of the fun I think at times I've been like far on one side of that going, Hey, those guys are really trying. Come on. Don't make fun of them. And and I think what I've realized is like, we all like, we, we honor those that try and it's okay to laugh when we fail and when others fail, because it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like we don't have to be so self-serious that we can't have a sense of humor when ourselves or our peers make a fool of themselves. But like you, then you forgive them and move on and everyone moves on. And it's kind of also like another great punk rock kind of thing is like not to take it all too seriously. Yeah. That like, ultimately it's fun. And when it stops being fun, it's like, you just see the whole thing just like get sucked of everything that matters. I think it's hard though, to see the fun in the moment. Like there's moments where you, you kind of mm. grab it. Like there's that song genetic by Lee Ronaldo, where he talks about little stabs of ha- at happiness, you know, and that's kind of what you mm. get in the moment I find, but like, you know, like, and I, I experienced it much later in life than you did and on a much smaller scale than you did. But like when all the attention goes on you 
And all of a sudden there's people depending on your creativity to pay their rent, you know, like at the record label or the booking Mm. agency, it suddenly becomes so much more frantic and, and not necessarily an enjoyable way. Like you just haven't had enough sleep. Yeah, 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 totally. And look, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's the principle. I mean, I was saying this to my wife the other day. I was like, fun even is like a weird word because like, I love making albums and when I'm in the middle of every single one, I'm totally stressed. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I just find it like, I find the energy of creativity to be both intoxicating and also just a burden. Yeah. You know, because it's like, I know I can't sleep until I do this thing that pretty much doesn't matter to anyone else. <laughs> like, like, like the level of importance that I feel in my cells on that I need to complete this vision the way I need to do it. And, and ultimately why, like who cares? But I, I do think there's almost like, it's almost like this triumph. Like it really is like spiritual, like much bigger than any particular album I mean, it's interesting, like, we're having this conversation, and you're not really asking me about any particular song or anything like that. It's oh, more just I'm like, holding back, man. I'm, I'm Oh, really, okay, okay. Ben, I have but, a sheet of questions general, that I'm avoiding. <laughs> okay, okay. But I think more in general, what we get from artists is just the inspiration of, like, the spirit that they tackled the job with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what I, like, I keep coming back to. I was like, oh, my God. The specifics hardly matter, even though I'm obsessed with them. But the keeping the spirit alive and doing it as if it's life and death and caring, really caring, you know, that's the thing that's going to inspire people at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, I've kept you for almost an hour, Ben, and I did mention this sheet of questions that I've been burning a hole in my pocket <laughs> since I was a kid. But I start like I start like just like evangelizing, so it's like I could suck up all the time. I think. Well, no, this has been incredible. This has been one of my favorite <laughs> conversations I've ever gotten to have. And before I go any further, would you come back at some point in the future for a part two? Oh, yeah, man. Let's do it anytime. Whatever. It's been a, a joy. We're so, so happy to get your email. I'm happy to do it. Oh, well, this has been, believe me, when my brother wrote me and was like, you're not going to believe it. Benley wants to come on the show. I was just uh, like, so what? Because cool. I was like, when he was like, I'm going to write to Benley. I'm like, ah, oh, don't bother. I don't think you want to do it. And then I can't, I'm was so stoked beside myself stoked that you want to do it. But I do have to ask you a couple of these questions. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, what was the deal with the versus silver chair? CD. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was honestly like these are such stupid things. What that was was <laughs> this is the funny. This only happened in like you know duct tape indie rock <laughs> kind of level <laughs> bands. But like the label accidentally printed a thousand copies of the rough mixes of our album. Okay. Um, instead of the album, the mastered record. Um, and a thousand in Australia for an indie band is like a lot. Like, I don't think until, <laughs> until breathing to nose, I don't think I'd sold more than two or 300 copies of an album. Um, so those singles must be like, super limited then. Sorry, not to cut you off, but all your seven inches must be crazy limited then. Yeah. I mean, they, it's just sort of like, no, but it's, it's a small market, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it's sort of, it just did. It feels like you can have in Australia when I was now it's changed with streaming, but a platinum record was 70,000 mm-hmm. and gold was 35. So 
just the proportions are so different. So that to, to, for a little indie label to have mis like wasted a thousand <laughs> copies. So we ended up with a thousand copies of this EP, The Taste in My Eyes, um, which I didn't love the EP anyway, let alone the rough mixes of it. Um, but we had these blank and we were like, oh, how do we turn this into something? And we just sort of thought it would be funny to call it because I, I remember like Sebado had done that Sebado versus Helmet. And yeah, I just that's what I thought it was a reference to. Yeah, just call it Noise Attic versus Silverchair because they were this other band that had like had kids in them and we were just being provocative, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so we just printed it and tried to get rid of them basically. <laughs> um, what was the deal with Noise Attic three quarters? Uh, what's that? Well, I wish I was, uh, him, was not put up by. No, you, well, that was just cause it was solo. <laughs> uh. Okay. That recording of, I wish I was him. So Pav, the guy who I said, like, you know, had sort of discovered me, I used to just make him tapes. Right. Mm. And so I just, I had this Sony boombox and I just write songs every day. I'd write at least a song or two after school. So every like week I had a full, like 90 minute cassette or two weeks, you know, of new songs, and I just would give them to him. I'd drop them off. That was uh, how, how wow. I was working as a teenager. Um, and so I guess he loved that song, and he, um, and then like Mike D got, I don't know, everyone got excited about it. And they said, we should put this out as a seven inch. But at that time, we didn't do like acoustic anything. Like we were like a noisy band. Yeah. So it felt weird for the band to put out a song with just me on it. So I called it noise addict and I just wrote minus three quarters. Oh, minus, like minus three quarters. the other band. Oh, that makes more sense than yeah, dash yeah. three quarters. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That explains it. Uh, what- I mean, it's funny how like all these ideas were like so bad because <laughs> the fact that like you liked it and you were totally confused was like not the point. It wasn't like Sebado Sendo like trying to be deliberately confusing. It was just like bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but – you know, you know, Lou, how much you think, like, how much you think that was planning and how much you think of that was just bad decisions? <laughs> well, I think he, I think he liked, I think he had a taste for, um, playing the, the game playing with people, with the oh, audience, definitely. Definitely. you know, like Will Oldham had, you know, like, I think I, I didn't really know about that. I was just like trying to like get my work across, but it was, I was crazy. So it came across as weird, you know? <laughs> Well, and it's funny because earlier on you described your, you know, you were like, I'm not a prodigy at all. Like, you know, when you're describing yourself in music, but here you are writing a song or two a day, making basically an album a week as like a teenager. Like, you know, when most teenagers, and especially at that age are, you know, at this point, like playing video games or, or, you know, playing sports or something, you're going home and had the dedication. Or I was playing Dungeons and Dragons. I'm not going to pretend like I was yeah, playing yeah. sports, but you're like going out and writing a song or two a day. Like that's incredible. Well, yeah, I would look if I was pressed, I would accept that I had some prodigal leanings in the world of singing, singing and songwriting, but that's not really like people don't even really talk about that as a talent that much like songwriting, you know, like, Mm. I mean, people who love music do, but more likely it's like, are you, oh my God, my kid, he's like the most amazing piano player or the most amazing you know, I, I just didn't have those physical skills, like being a, a singer-songwriter, being able to create this weird little three- or four-minute moment with lyrics and repetition and chords. Like, it, it, it's still somewhat of an abstract skill. I think yeah, songwriting, yeah. in a way, is like 
in a way, it's almost as unfashionable as it's ever been. If you look at the music that's popular, it is not generally music with one person sitting crafting a song. Mm-hmm. It's these giant like machine marketing exercises that are like they're like advertising jingles. Um, so I, I, it, if if I disrespect it, it might only be because I don't I haven't felt to live in a world that respected it that much. Like mm-hmm. otherwise, like. Robert Pollard would be, you know, more lauded in our society than he is. And I don't know. It's just sort of a weird thing. I should probably think about that. I mean, I think people get it if it's like Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan. Like, if you're, like, old and you write really long, serious songs that are poetic, (laughs) I think people will respect you. (laughs) I love those guys, too. But if you write, like, shorter, funny, whimsical snarky like those kind of things i think we don't quite know what to do with those people you know <laughs> yeah because like i would I'm, I'm gonna i this would get me thrown out of my country when people hear this but i would say that to me uh hospital by jonathan richmond is profound as anything that was ever written by leonard cohen yeah 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 yeah. sure and it's, exactly. and, and and it's look, never going to be taken up like that at all yeah and that's what what like people like you and me can agree on but i just look at like the larger culture yeah, yeah. And I don't think they look at Jonathan Richmond as a genius. No, they like, don't. They don't. No. They look at him as the guy in something about Mary if they think about him at all. You Which know? I'm <laughs> grateful that he at least has that because Me otherwise, too. like, what would he be looked at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Me too. Yeah. He's the guy who invented straight edge, for Christ's sake. You know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That credit. And they give it to poor, like, Ian McKay. Like, that guy needs another <laughs> accolade. Um, <laughs> what did you think when you heard Kathleen Hanna covering your song? Um, I was, I was really excited. I was like confused about how money worked at that point. Like in the music, I was like, I was like, do I get paid for that? Uh, I was sort of confused about like, um, but I was really, yeah, it was very exciting. I mean, they were sort of a small band. It wasn't like Bikini Kill had the yeah, no, absolutely. cultural currency that they do today. But I do remember being really excited. But I was also kind of like, I couldn't tell if she was making fun of the song or if she liked it, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, but yeah. I was speculating too. Did she change? She changes a couple of lyrics if she was singing about Thurston Moore as opposed to uh, Evan Dando. Oh, maybe, maybe. Well, it was all just about that type of hero worship because yeah, the yeah, song totally. was not crafted really around Evan. It was, it was just about this way you look at the older, cool, successful people in the scene. You know? Yeah. No, and that's why I think that song ages because it doesn't yeah. have to be about Evan Dando. It could be about yeah, anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I could keep you all night. And I'm not going to. I this promise. Last question. What was it like collaborating with Nigo? Oh, yeah. That's so – so few people – it's so funny because um, there's a generation now that Bathing Ape is just like the coolest thing, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, like down on Fairfax. And, you know, so like every now and then I'll bust out like a – I've got like a Ben Lee Bathing Ape T-shirt or like a limited jacket and the people look at me like, whoa! <laughs> but um, but um, that – you know, that song – Nigo was working with this guy Kudo, who was a producer, mm-hmm. and um, he. I mean, Nigo's a bit enigmatic. Um, he's kind of like my impression of him was he's a bit like Andy Warhol, m- meaning like he's like got these concepts, but as far as the execution, sometimes he was like involving other people in doing the actual execution, but he was like a brilliant curator in who to, who to put together. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I sent them a recording that was just keyboard, guitar, and vocals of that song, Freediving, and 
and they sent it back. And I don't know who did what in the studio. I didn't see Nego do much that was like super musical, but I could be totally wrong about that. Yeah. Um, I, I sensed of him more as like, like more of like a tastemaker who knew what was cool. You know what I mean? And knew how to put things together. Um, but it was funny. But then we, so I did that and I really liked it. And then um, he invited me on this tour and we did this tour, like me, him, Money Mark, James Lavelle, Cornelius. We went through Japan. Um, and I just remember thinking it was really funny. I mean, I've, I've sort of always found um, like that side of sort of street culture um, sort of funny. I don't know why. Like it was like there was a side of the Beastie Boys thing that was like, like I really loved the like the jokey relatable side, but the side that was all about like the newest, edgiest, coolest thing. Like I always found it just a bit comedic. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I just never could fully get on board with like the idea you had to have this t-shirt or these shoes or it's more like hip hop culture. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which is not really like, like I, I respect it, but it's just not, I was, I don't know. I just wasn't that into it. But, um, but, um, but yeah, it was a great experience. I mean, it was one of those odd, kind of collaborations <laughs> that just happened. And um, I never, I mean, Nico did not speak that much English. Like the times we spoke, I think were through an interpreter. Yeah. Um, so I can't even say I got to know that guy that well, but I look at him now kind of as a masterful entrepreneur too, who um, I think he's, he's made this sort of larger piece of conceptual art, which is the creation of a universe. Yeah. Um, which is quite incredible, like how he's curated that. Uh, you know, um, you brought up the Beastie Boys earlier, and they were kind of the first group to do that that I can think of that created their own, like, you know, in the sense that you could buy the clothing, you could buy the magazine, you could buy the lifestyle that they were. Yeah, I think I related to it, though, because they they had a sense of humor about it. It yeah. was sort of like, I think they were laughing about the fact that they could do it even while it was happening. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of, and, and a lot of it was about turning people onto really silly things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it is that, that's a sort of another side of it. That's kind of like, I think almost like most people who get a little success, not most people, but there's quite a few people that go into that, like, I'm going to start a record label now or I'm going to do, and I think they mostly find out it's a way bigger headache than they ever imagined. Yeah. Um, and I was on, you know, Thurston's label and the Beastie Boys label, two artist labels at really pivotal points of my career. And I think with both of them, the impression I got was that they didn't really want to be like, like running a label and having other people's careers in your hands mm -hmm. is like, it's kind of a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Like it's a huge responsibility. Um, and I think it takes quite a rare artist who really wants to do that and be hands on with it. Yeah. Like it's hard to think of like maybe Maverick Madonna's label, but like to think of too many labels. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I think Guy Siri did tons of that. I don't know how yeah, that's true. Madonna was like, um, I think Mark Ronson seems to like yeah, to do that. Right. I mean, yeah. he's a producer, um, I don't know. There, there are people who do it, but it's it's very rare because you have to be you have to like also being off stage and being a cheerleader. Yeah, you have to have no to ego. a degree. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or you have to just have your ego get satisfied in a different way by seeing yeah. someone else in the spotlight, which a lot of performers are not like that, too. No, <laughs> no, not definitely. <laughs> I'm certainly not like that yeah. myself, so I don't expect any other yeah. performer to be like that. Um, ben, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for taking Right on, time. man. And uh, I can't yeah, wait to... Great. I can't wait to do a part two with you at some point. Cool. Anytime. Good to talk to you, buddy. Thank you, Ben, so much for coming on the show. And you heard right there that he's going to be back for, for more parts. Oh, I'm going to hold him to that. Oh, that was a thrill for me. Oh, that was such a thrill. Uh, I didn't tell him this, but the last time I spoke to Ben Lee was when I shouted out a song request at the show he played at the Rivoli in 1997. And he said, no, he did not play my request. But, you know, maybe if I requested it now, now that we know each other, he might play The Loft. So next time Ben Lee comes to Toronto, I'm going to try and recreate that moment and yell that song out again. And, and hopefully this time he plays it. Uh, but he will be back for more on the show. You heard right there. He will be back. Oh, oh that was fun. Oh, that was fun. Speaking of fun, let's keep the fun going. I'm going to drop an episode ASAP with my good friend, Alex Lichtenauer from the band or the, the well, the band Control Top, but also of the incredible label, uh, Get Better Records. Alex is someone who I became friends with a while ago. We've been trying to make this happen for a bit. Alex even came over to my house and we were sitting here and, and we didn't get a chance to record it. So we finally got to sit down and do it. And I'm so excited for you to hear it. That will be dropping. I'm going to say in a few days, I'm going to work on it super hard to get it dropping in a few days and check out control top on tour. They're on tour right now. And that's it. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. Everyone, anyone can do this thing. Uh, go out there and, and, uh, sign your organ donor cards uh, smash fascism and, and just be, be you, be you. And I, I don't know if everyone was fucking around about that, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood movie, but like it, it was meant to be like showgirls bad, right? Like it felt like arrested development. If arrested development was directed by a, a film student who was obsessed with, uh, sort of sixties and seventies cinema, that's what it, it felt like to me. But anyway, that. I don't know why I had to put that in there at the end. I guess Quentin Tarantino is never going to come on this podcast, but that's just fine by me. Just fine by me. It's like the bonus track where I just give film reviews at the end of the podcast now. Okay, that's it. That's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you next week. Or, or later on. Not next week. I'm going to try and do it before next week. But every time I say that, it tends up being longer than a week between episodes. So... I'll see you soon.